Welcome to Talk Design, the show where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host. Having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Adrian Ramsey, and I'm your host on Talk Design. I started this podcast because I wanted to share the journey of design that I've had and that many others have had, and I find it inspirational talking to people globally about what makes design tick and what makes design create a better world for others. My journey has taken me from clothing globally, women's swimwear, performance sportswear, mountaineering, yachting, all these kind of genres where each place I would learn more and more about different specifics and how clothing can support those. Also, I've worked in innovation as a systematic innovation trainer and worked with the aerospace industry as well as the marketing industry and the design industry. And all my years of design Still my favourite is the built structure and interiors. In years of travel and discovery, I constantly look at what the emotions are that are created by the built space. I consider myself a student of design for my whole life and will go on that way. Some of the things that I do to support this is my podcast, And then workshops and masterclasses where I teach people about trends and design thinking and tours where I take people on tour with me and we go and discover different points of architecture or interior design globally. I always think that when you're passionate about something, one of the things that you should do is is you should share it. And so creating the podcast was my way of sharing my enthusiasm and the enthusiasm of others and their passions around design with you. I hope you really enjoy it. And I ask you, would you please drop us a line? Tell us what you think. Tell us what got you excited. It's so inspiring when we get messages from our listeners that tell us about the things that shifted in their life because of who they listen to. And it gives me the inspiration to dig deeper and find more people that I can bring to your ears so that you live a better design life. My guest on Talk Design today is Morris Ajmi. Morris is from New York City. Well, he's actually from New Orleans, but he lives in New York City and has Morris Ajmi Architects in New York City. They build beautiful towers. And I met Morris in Australia here when he was touring with Brickworks, who were had him out here to talk about his work with bricks and it's fascinating and not only his work with bricks but how even he's replicated bricks in other formats to make them fit with the environment and something that really struck me about what Morris does and his firm does is obviously in New York City there's a lot of compliances the innovation that they bring to that and that kind of thinking that uh, excitement of thinking so Morris welcome to Talk Design great to have you here and I will put one little thing in we did record this a week ago but I didn't record it so we're going to try and replicate what we did a week ago (laughs) 
Cheers, Morris. Uh, Adrian, thank you for having me on the show. And also, thank you for doing it again. So oh, no, hopefully thank we, can, you. We, can, we can rise to the, to, to the point Wait. that we were at last time. Exactly. Maybe the cream will rise to the top. Um, yep. As I said, you're in New Orleans. Currently, you're in New Orleans because you uh, it's nearly Christmas. We're only, what, not even, what are we, three days Less out? Less than a week away, yeah. Yeah, three days out from Christmas. Um, and Morris is in uh, what we'd call 10 degrees, 50 for him, so it's a little cool. However, he's from New York, so he's used to cool weather as well. <laughs> and he's very, very kindly zoomed in again so that we could pick up our conversation. Now, New Orleans is his native home. And so I want to start off with the fact that this is your native home. And that story you told me about finding out about architecture and how those influences came um, was really fascinating. So would you want to tell me, tell us all that again? I've heard it for everybody else that's listening. Sure. You know, I, I think what I said last time, but um, it is pretty much the truth is that had I not grown up here, I might not have been an architect. And I think being stimulated by the architecture and the lifestyle in New Orleans um, really led me to a career in architecture. I think New Orleans is known for the food, certainly for the music, and maybe to a lesser extent, the architecture. But um, you know, it was founded by the French and then developed by the Spanish. Um, and you know, when I was say about eight years old, I went on a class, a school trip to yeah. the French Quarter, the Vieux Carré. And the teacher was an art class. And the teacher said we could draw anything we wanted. And I, I was really drawn to the balconies and the columns and the filigree, the cast iron and uh, metal filigree that you see on a lot of those buildings, um, which recalls Spain or France. Um, and I really just fixated on the columns and started drawing the columns. And later the teacher explained to me that there were orders for columns and those orders dictated how the building was organized and how the um, different um, classical orders were used on the facade. And that really led me to start looking at families of things, columns, but also buildings. And then that led me to eventually study with Aldo Rossi and his ideas about typology um, and the city. Yeah. I find um, the fact that cast iron was such a huge um, building material as well is quite a fascinating journey. And there's plenty of that in New York as well. There was plenty of it in New York. Um, and the fact that you had a teacher that was so, I suppose, educated um, or uh, understood that that level of building yeah. and also architecture. You know, a lot of that could have gone past if you'd said you were going to draw a tree, you would have never heard of that again or, you know, right, like a... Right. Yeah. Well, I, I think that, you know, that's what we all should do is just find, you know, our passion and really lean into it and then make that what we do, um, because otherwise we're, we're just doing a job as opposed to really fulfilling a dream. Yeah, I think that's so important as well. But, you know, the old saying, of course, everybody does. If you you know do something that you're passionate about, you'll never work a day in your life. I always say to people, Absolutely. no, you'll work every day in your life. Um, if you if you're passionate about it and it's it's so true finding something that uh, lights you up enough that it's I suppose more the passion than the business but however the business is super important as well because if you're just passionately sitting in your room and 
you know, drawing architecture all day, but nobody gets to experience it or their lives don't become bettered by it, then it's been a wasted journey. And other than for yourself, it's been a wasted journey. And when you take that model and you go, okay, how do I put the business of of around that? Then a lot of people get to ex- experience your passion and your gift and what you do. Um, yeah, I mean... I was just going to say, I think everything that I do and see ends up filtering back to the architecture. So that's a way to bring your experiences to what you do, but also make it relevant to how you live, you know, every day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, if you, if, if, like you say, like everything that you do, and I know this from my own point of view, I'll see how the light glances off something or I'll I'll see anything that kind of doesn't even have to be that unusual. I think one of the tricks is, is to stop and look at something very ordinary and analyze what's very ordinary about it as well. Actually, I, I did a podcast with a guy called Simon Devitt. He's a New Zealand architectural photographer. Great guy. Really, really lovely guy. And he teaches photography as well. And one of the things he does is he gets his students to go and stand they they choose a spot in, in the city and they stand on that spot and they're not allowed to leave it I think it's for a couple of hours and they've got a sketch pad um or they might have a camera but they've got to observe the spot and they're not allowed to move from the spot they've got to just take everything in that that spot offers and then come back and report on it essentially and, you know, you see when um, architectural students are sent off to draw buildings. I was recently in Barcelona and there was, a, oh, I don't know, maybe 20 of them all sitting along uh, the edge of a, a street drawing the building opposite. And when you take that much time to observe it, you actually get to see what you didn't see in that first glance. And Yeah, and that's actually very important for me. Um, in this, in, in in a couple of different ways. First of all, I think the you know there's been a tendency or trend for buildings facades to get thinner and flatter, and the effects of light and shadow are less pronounced on those buildings. Yeah. Um, and so I think one of the things we try to do is create buildings that have a certain amount of depth, so that the interplay of light and shadow becomes like another material. It becomes another. Um, effect on the building just like the color of the materials that make up the building um and then the other thing that you mentioned about you know seeing beyond what's ordinary and you know we'll talk a little bit and we did talk a little bit about this um as a to brian eno and mm. how that influenced mm. the way i think about <laughs> architecture i love particularly, that you know how buildings really great buildings can be you know, they can rise to the level of, you know, of, of greatness by you noticing them, but they also can exist in a way without you, without screaming out and calling yeah. um, to, to their attention. Um, and so I think that that idea that buildings get better with more scrutiny or more uh, views or a different view um, is more important than just making a big statement, because I think the big statement is relevant for some types of buildings, a monument or a museum, maybe. Um, but I think oh, well, you that... think of some of Thomas Hethwick, Hethwick's work, you know, like that kind of thing, big statement work. 
Right, right. And and I think he does beautiful work. But at the same time, once you get past the statement, it's like, is there more? And I think, mm. you know, it's incumbent upon us to make sure that even if we do make a big statement, that the details and the subtleties of the building also resonate. How how the building delivers, you know, yeah. how, how it delivers beyond and beyond and beyond. You know, one of the beautiful things about, I think, any art is like whether it be a painting or whether it be a song or whether it be a movie or any of these kind of expressions is when you kind of, you you, you might first notice it, but then le- leaning into the layers of it to to discover it. It's like, yeah, yeah, I've seen it, but to discover it. And one of the yeah, things and- with traveling is architecture like that. Yeah. And, you know, I talked... Uh, last time we talked, I'd mentioned how Brian Eno's... Oh, yeah. Tell the story, yeah. ...about, um, you know, creating a whole genre of music called ambient music and how it started when he had broken a leg and someone brought him uh, a, a a record to play of, you know, 18th century uh, classical music. And she left and then he noticed that one of the speakers was out and it was barely audible. and that really started this whole idea of ambient music, music that could blend with the sound of knives and forks over dinner. Um, and I think he he described it as music that could be as ignorable as it was exceptional. And, you know, I think for me, that's informed my process and what we try to achieve in creating ambient architecture, that architecture that can blend right in, fit in with a neighborhood, but with more scrutiny or, you know, if you line up 20 students and you look at it, you start to see more and you start to appreciate it. Mm -hmm. And also the effects of time, you know, that's something that um, is a very important part of, you know, film, for example, but it's also important part of architecture because in the morning uh, the light hits the building a certain way in the winter, it hits it a different way, you know? So all of these things, I think, enhance the experience in a way that, we need to be cognizant of and also bake into our designs. And, um, you know, the, the other thing about that first record, Discrete Music, which was um, uh, Eno's take on Pachelbel's Canon in D major, was a classical piece of music that he used tape loops to modify the sound. So it starts to break down. One of them is inverse relationship to the pitch of the instrument. So it, gets really sort of bassy quickly and a whole series of different, um, there's three pieces and then he does a piece on the original, but that really inspired me in this idea of can architecture be completely new? Can it be completely modern, but not lose its, its roots and its legacy in the past, in the classical. And, you know, I think all great, architecture still has elements of the past reinterpreted in a way. I think for me, architecture needs to be, needs to satisfy two things. One needs to speak to our time. And we have certain um, things that we're concerned with, uh, the environment and sustainability Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. efficiency of of facades and uh, quality of life and accessibility. Um, But we also think oh it to the history of architecture and you know culture to have a connection and to keep that connection 
alive through the things that we make. And so I, that's what I try to do. I, well, I think you do it successfully as a company, very, very much so. It, and it shows through your work. And when, when you explain that line of where you, what you try to achieve in it, it, you can see that culture running through the design process um, yeah. so clearly. It's so fascinating. As you were telling me that, I um, I have a, a, a job I did in India. And I've I've never been to India, but anyway, I designed a house in India, and uh, this was a few years ago. And when I was doing it, I was just doing so much research into the area and like the different things about it. And this this kind of goes to another conversation that we had. So I'm doing all this stuff, and I'm looking for these, um, like you're saying, elements that belong in the tradition. Mm-hmm. But then how do we make those elements fresh and modern? How do we carry them forward? Um, right. Ultimately, though, I wanted the, the, the it was a house to belong, to, to have a feeling of belonging. I didn't want it to stand out stupidly. Anyway, right. anyway so I sent my first sort of like conceptual, it's only really a front facade on this building, sent my first conceptual drawings for the front facade of this building off to the guy and I, I give him a call and he's like, he's not excited. And I'm like, that's oh. the worst. Yeah. You're like, you're so excited. <laughs> and then you're like, what? It's me thinking I've done really, really well. Right, like, right. Oh, I'm, I'm expecting him to jump out of his skin with excitement. And he sent me back. He said, he sent me back a picture of a building that could have just been anywhere. It could have been. It it was just a modern looking house. Um, And it was that was his that was his objective that well, that was ultimately because we never really got deep into discussing that we got we we deeply discussed what needed to how the building used needed to function. Uh, But we didn't really get into the um, facade piece of it. You know, we were working through to that. And I was like, I was like, oh, I was just so deflated. Right, right, right. And so then I had to reapproach it to try and really work. Then then I went to work. You know, then I really went to work. The other was my fantasy, the next was work. And I had to reapproach the building based on how could I now effectively not trick him, but maneuver him so that I still uh, got some of these work. elements. Trick was probably the thing whilst delivering yeah. on his needs. And right. uh, yeah, just just one of those fascinating things. Were, were you able to get there? Did you feel like yeah, you got somewhat, there? somewhat? Yeah. Not not the yeah. whole way. And interestingly, um, about a month ago, he contacted me and said, "I want to do another building." So um, that's good. Yeah, this time I will definitely go to India. The other was about oh goodness, I, I reckon it was about six or seven years ago, maybe longer, seven years ago that I did it. So yeah, um, I think seeing a site obviously makes a difference i mean now we have all kind of tools like google oh, yeah. street view etc cetera, etc cetera. but when you go to a place you smell it, it smells the, the light the, the things that are intangible yeah um affect you yeah uh, and you start to be inspired by that i i think that's that's a, a massive thing of understanding a site is and and you know like that site could be 
like a lot of your work, it's already a site that well exists in, in, in a place and it has other buildings on it when you start or it has something there, you know, um, that being around it in a moment or a series of moments abs- lets you absorb things. And especially when you take time to observe it in those moments. So how do you do that in your, in your studio? Like, do you take the whole team down or do you just go and get coffee yourself? Like, how does that happen? I mean, I think it's probably a combination, you know, doing some research about a site. I think some of the things you see by observation, but some of the things you learn about a neighborhood or Mm -hmm. a place through Mm -hmm. research. I tend Mm -hmm. to like to go down by myself during the process and kind of feel it out. Um, Another thing that I think we do a lot, a fair amount of work um, in historic districts. Yeah. And in those in New York anyway, and and some outside of New York, but in those areas, we have to present to the Landmarks Preservation Commission. And so there are very, there are a series of historic districts. Each one of them has their own story, their own history. And so we start by reading the designation report, which describes how that neighborhood came to be, what were the cultural influences and, you know, the architectural influences, the use, you know, the uses of the buildings. And then we try to create a narrative Mm -hmm. that um, explains how our building fits into that legacy. And, you know, what I like to say is that just because it's a historic build, you know, district or it's near historic buildings, it doesn't mean that history stopped at that point. And so we need to be able to figure out a way, which I think we have in our process to make what we're doing relevant and appropriate to the neighborhood or to the site. So, so when you do that, like, I mean, the amount of history you must know of the city must be, just take New York in this case, must be incredible because of the fact that you've had to dig through the layers of that. And then, like you say, when there's a significant other building or, you know, some historic site, that's like a marker in time and mm-hmm. and and it it has its time span and then does it become the benchmark like i mean i'm i'm going to use this as a, it's not a good example but i'm going to use it and then we'll see where it goes but say something like the flat iron building where it's yeah. not necessarily oh, i mean it's a fabulous building but it's its shape is what creates its interest and the way that it's like the the two roads that come off from it you know as it splits there yet if you were to build something near it close to it or whatever it would it be a major influence or how would that be um and and how would you make a a relativeness or relationship in that neighborhood well i i mean that's a very interesting neighborhood for a number of reasons but um we've done four or five projects close to the Flatiron building. And oh, so it was a good choice to say the Flatiron. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's a perfect, perfect example. And what's interesting about the Flatiron building is everything you said is true. The location, the shape, etc. There are a couple of other things that really play into why this historic district became significant. And this is a very unique district. And I would say that most districts have their own story and they can um, uh, exist as their own entity in the city. Mm -hmm. 
and are very different. And here, for example, it started off as a residential neighborhood with small townhouses and stable buildings to service the, the people that lived in the townhouses for the carriages. And over time, the buildings got bigger and bigger. And so the buildings then uh, uh, were repurposed. A lot of those buildings were repurposed as um, retail buildings. So storefronts were added on. Mm -hmm. People would live above mm -hmm. and then have their shop below. So would they be and one or maybe two or three stories? Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. The, but fairly low rise. Buildings. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. And then, then six-story buildings started to come into play. There were loft buildings, which are there dozens, there hundreds yeah. or thousands of loft buildings in the city for light manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And then those got bigger. You know, they rose to about 125 feet. Um, so whatever, 40 meters. Um, and this whole neighborhood for another transformation. And the reason why this is called Ladies Mile Historic District is because all of these very large department stores started to, 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 to be developed along Fifth Avenue, Broadway, and also Sixth Avenue. Um, so you have this one story of, you know, buildings getting bigger. You have another sort of line of, uh, 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 to consider is, and it doesn't seem that looking at it now, but changes in technology had a profound impact to this neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is, you know, things start off as very simple, small masonry structures with punched windows. And then when you get to a building like the Flatiron Building, very large steel or cast iron um, members were used. So that building has very large windows and a terracotta facade. <clears throat> Excuse me. What's also important, another important factor about that building is that it's white. Yeah. So when you think of New York, typically, maybe now, you know, a lot of glass buildings. Yeah, but, I was about to say, yeah, a lot of mirror, a lot of glass. Yeah, but but New York, you know, from the 1600s all the way through was primarily a red brick city. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Right. Brownstones right. So, and stuff like that. Yeah. Right. You got brownstones, you have brick buildings. Yeah. Um, and then, and, and, and so the architect for the, Flatiron Building was Daniel Burnham, an architect from Chicago. And I don't know if you or anyone uh, listening to this has read The Devil in the White City, but I highly recommend it if you like thrillers or history or architecture. And it blends all of those together. There is a, and it's all true. This is a true story. And it talks about the, the Columbian Exposition of yeah. 1894, essentially. Um, and there's a serial killer on the loose. So think, you know, Jack the Ripper or something and meets, you know, a story about the development of this World's Fair. And yeah, wow. it's an amazing story because what happens is they're creating all these neoclassical giant buildings for all the uh, countries of the world to display their products and you know they're racing against time to get it done and there's a couple of other things that i'm not going to talk about because mm -hmm. i gotta leave some i gotta leave some spoilers something for the book you know yes exactly <laughs> it's not but been I, made I, into a movie either yet 
Yeah, I don't I don't know if it has been made into really good a really good read. But um, so what ends up happening is they run out of time, and they paint everything white. They just whitewash the whole place. Yeah. And, and that had a profound effect because the architects that were working, they were both Chicago architects and New York architects. And that sort of transformed the landscape of the Ladies Mile Historic District, which has a very high uh, predominance of white or light yeah. colored stone or uh, brick buildings. Um, and so hence the terracotta facade at the Flatiron Building. So when you're when you're walking up around that area, at what point does that really shift in color? Like where does that color I mean, I sort of band? Because you it, say that, and I can see it in my mind now. I'm yeah, I'm, I'm, it, I'm there. Like I'm going. I remember that now, yeah. and it feels all of a sudden it feels more expansive because of yeah. the light color. Yeah, it, absolutely. And um, you know, you see a lot of buildings together with different tones of of white off-white beige and the buildings we've done we've done in a milky terracotta we've done things in glass with a white um patina or uh frosting um but i think it does there's not a crisp edge where it starts it's a little blurry around yeah just sort of dots in and then yeah but but that district really goes from about 14th, 15th Street to about 23rd Street and from, say, Broadway to 6th Avenue. And, like, that's, like, the heart of that that neighborhood. Was that the original garment district or no? Um, More just Ladies Mile? That, 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 there were some garment manufacturers there. I mean, there were throughout the city, but the garment district's a little further north. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, yeah. yep, yep, yep. I remember back when I first ever... Uh, traveled to New York, which was a long time ago now, and I was in the garment trade. And you know, you would see those trucks and racks and racks. You'd see yeah, people running the down the street. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Those days seem to have gone. That maybe I mean, the delivery schedules that, have changed. I mean, that's kind of the sad thing about where we are now is that that was exciting to be like in the middle yeah. of, you know. All creation yeah, creation right. and and the whir yeah. of commerce and yeah. Oh, yeah yeah i mean and i and i think i noticed when i was in australia like all of your, your alleys or laneways i guess you call them mm-hmm. you know they're 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 starting to be gentrified well maybe gentrified but also activated you know in a yeah. good way you know yeah. it's, it becomes like these secret little shops or bars mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. cafes little sort of yeah, tiny little um, concession type built, um, spaces. You know that would have once been somebody's storerooms uh, for right. another business, and and all of a sudden now it's a little cafe or a little right. bar or a really you know a shop that just does a little artisan product. You might just do beautiful leather goods or just clayware or something like this. That is the magic of, I suppose, gentrification. In that that kind of feel, and and also it's like okay, you've got all your big brands on all the boulevards and avenues, but like if you if you if you travel, and you You go to buy those big brands everywhere, (laughs) you don't want to see that. You want to see the surprise guy that's making a little leather wallet, hundred percent. You know, yeah, folk cocktail. You know that you can't get anywhere else. 
isn't that this is a whole nother subject which i've kind of written myself a couple of notes here that i want to ask you about and i know we covered some of this before that with it um the 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 fact that architecture has become so visible because of the likes of instagram because of social media really Instagram, sure. Pinterest, you know, all these different sites. And and the speed that, like, I can flick you a photo now of something here in my garden and you can send me something back that's happening on the street below right. you, you know, in right. an instant. We can be doing it real time. That has changed in architecture to a large degree, has become homogenized because of it, especially, I think, in the... um in the residential area of architecture, you know, single house residential and maybe small low rise, uh, you know, compounds, you know, where it might be 10 or 15 multi-res building, multi-res apartments or something seems to have become incredibly homogenized globally. And what you would see in Stockholm, you'll see in, you know, Brisbane or whatever. And I go, when you were talking before about, being in New York City and you've got your historic districts and the level that they make you play at to play in the historic district. It's like, no, 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 no. You can't just bring your own ball. You need to bring our ball with you and and we can play together, but we can't play singly very easily. They'll say no. And this creates, I think, depth and, and history and a sense of a place as opposed to it being just random stuff from anywhere. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people complain, you know, developers or architects or designers about limitations when it comes to history Uh and or historic districts. I mean, I argue that it's those places that we want to hang out in, that we want to be in. You know, we don't want to go to some generic vanilla neighborhood and, you know, I can point out a number of neighborhoods in New York where one side of the street is a historic district and it's oh. vibrant and it's there's still development there and people want to be there. And on the other side of the street is just generic, boring architecture because nobody's, you know, creating. Nobody's creating the tension. Right. Or trying to say that, you know, it needs to be relevant. So um, I think that we can do good. We can do great work. And it can still respond to its context. And I think that's what makes places better. Yeah. Um, and also, if you travel to Barcelona, you don't want to see the same work. And no. No, when you but... were just, I was going to say, when you were just talking about you know, how you can see the same buildings all over the place. And I think if I think of, you know, I, I just, I don't know. I, I, I thought about um, uh, Palladio who created domestic architecture, we could say, in, in, in the 1500s, or yep. whatever, right? And his, his language of architecture and his um, approach was to mine, you know, forms and influence from Greek and Roman architecture mm-hmm. and then use that. And then that traveled to England and became a different thing. It went to Russia became a different thing. It came to America and it was reinterpreted in wood and not in stone, which is curious because it started off as 
timber and then it was turned into stone and then it was turned back into it went, it went full cycle yeah full cycle but you know you know that was social media you know there was you know circulating books at the time of what the latest happenings were in in, in Italy it, whatever. yeah and then that became something that sort of started or fueled a whole new um departure or in, re, or interpretation and so I think that those things are good. And I think that cross-pollination of ideas and imagery is good, but not just by rote and just like, oh, I'm going to copy this. It's like, understand yeah. why it's relevant for you or for the people mm. that are going to experience it. Mm. But yeah, I, I, I'm with you. That I think the... The other thing that's shifted with it that maybe has made it more vanilla now, and not saying that these homes are vanilla or these buildings are vanilla in the sense of some of them are spectacular. It's just that they tend to um, be easy to pop up is that the materiality of things has become less of a place and so when you right. were saying before you know like it got reinterpreted back into timber after it started timber right. went stone right. and then back into timber and different different kinds of timber would define different spans and different um, texture as well you look at these things and you go how do you get a i want to say a a feel so that a place maintains some sense of of lineage where, where i live here on the sunshine coast um we have a subtropical climate some of the sunshine coast in uh, queensland australia which is about an hour north of brisbane however mm. it is not what we would call northern um you know the northern queensland weather right. so we we get a fairly stable temperature range at summer most of the time we get a lot of light and a lot of sun you know we're nice. 330 sunshine days a year something around that so it's a very easy climate it's a very um bland climate it gets cool in the winter but it stays beautifully clear it gets right. hot and muggy in the summer for a few months the leaves don't particularly change we don't get a seasonal change right and right with housing, our biggest concerns are heat, not cold. So we we tend to try and keep the heat out rather than let the cold in. Yet with right. the thing you were saying before about the facades of buildings and getting shape and stuff, we have some very simple rules around setbacks and things like that, that people as block size gets smaller are just constantly pushing out to get the maximum size building on the block. And I was thinking back to our conversation about how, you know, skyscraper sort of development is curtain walls. And right. then you lose this depth of facade at that point, and you've got to become innovative to play with that again. How do you, how do you innovate that, that playfulness into the building again? And there I go again, we, we, we can get materials from, you know, anywhere in the world, we and, and people do. You know, we have right. siding from Germany. We have stuff from all around the world. And so people, a lot of the time, I think there's a lot of 
replica replication as opposed to innovation and using elements to bring it forward um yeah and yeah i think it's just a choice i think it probably takes a little bit more work to create something that has this connection and is relevant mm-hmm. but i think it's worth the effort I, you know one thing i noticed in charleston south carolina here in the states is that the historic buildings have a very curious typology they're they're very narrow on the street front and you enter through a doorway that's actually a porch and then you enter the house from outside okay on the long side um but all of those houses have porches either on the south or the west and that's because that's the the most heat gain so they create these in in the northern Hemisphere. Yes. Hemisphere. Yeah. 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 Sure. Yeah. yeah. Ours would so, be the so, north and the west would be. We block ourselves it, it, from the west here. Yeah. Oh, right. uh, where I live and down right. south they don't, but up here we block the west. Yeah. So so that creates a um, typology that then can be reinterpreted in many different ways. You don't have to use classical columns. You don't have to use, you know, the same language, but those that sort of history can inform a building and make it respond to the climate in a way that is not just applied. It's germane to the place because you have those considerations for, you know, heat gain. Because it's how, it's how the place works. Yep. Yep. I was at um, Texas Society of Architects conference in Jackson Hole earlier this year and there was a guy called Omar Gandhi who um, presented and fascinating. And he talked about moving to, um, oh God, it's escaped me anyway. Um, the, the actual name, I should be able to go like that. But is it Texas? No, 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 no. He's, oh, okay. um, he's up in um, Nova Scotia. And okay. um, he's talking about uh, the, the snow loads and understanding the snow loads and the roofing and all the rest. And that's why the typology carries so many of these roof shapes, because that's where it comes from. That's what it does. And it will collapse the building otherwise. And just like, so this is, this is kind of a rule of the spot of the place. And And it could just become a whole new way to express the building. And I look around what we do here where I am and, and you look at it and you go, well, we've got, massive rain loads like that when it rains we we, you know we can get 100 millimeters of rain in a couple of hours so it it's serious amount of rain that can fall and yet when that happens i would but not that often it just happens yeah it probably happens like maybe three or four times a year enough and all the gutters are big and deep and you know things like this to carry all the water load and a lot of our stormwater goes straight to the um, you know, roof water and stuff goes straight to the streets, um, mm-hmm. and let this let that system handle it rather than trying to have smaller systems handle it. Um, but with it, the thing that I notice is is that we have often quite inadequate roof pitching for the amount of say leaf litter that we would have as well, yep. and we have um, gutter sizes that if I drove you around here when it's like really pouring, you would go. Adrian, how come 10 out of 12 houses, their gutters are overflowing right now? And you go, well, because they weren't designed to carry what's happening. Right, right, It's a simple thing. And yet 
the regulations let us be in that space. And so therefore the costs bring it down to be the most efficient and then at that um, costing thing. So then they overflow. And right. whether that's right. wrong or right doesn't, I, I look at that and I go again in this typology of uh, where I am, we're new, you know, everything's fairly new and they're trying to, the, the local council's trying to create a sense of a typology without right. putting boundaries on it so tightly. Um, right. They're saying this is what would make a healthier home in this area and they're trying to educate the architectural community to this is what would be best in this zone um and the construction stuff and is it it's a really interesting conversation to look at how that happens without being over prescribed right right and i think that that's important because if you're so if you're too prescriptive then you get something that just really feels banal and not Mm. um inventive so yeah and there's no innovation in it Right. I, I want to talk a little bit about innovation because last time I um one of the things we talked about was your building the Grand Mulberry. And I it was one that really captured me, and I mean many of them did when you presented, but this one really captured me in the fact that it was a, a, a red terracotta building. Um, you know, yeah. and it's a brick building. Yeah. And the way that you played with the history of that space or or that place and then with a fairly flat facade created movement and um i haven't been and seen the building i want to go when i'm in new york i definitely want to go and observe the building you know it's one of those things i want to see it through different parts of the day you know the police will probably try and move me on um, I want I want to see the light shift on it. So tell us a bit yeah. about that building and how it became. Yeah, I I mean it's a modest building, um, six story building with a penthouse uh, on the corner of Grand and Mulberry. There was a, two small structures there that have the Italian American Museum, um, and they've gone back into the building. The owners of the building stole the site to a developer, and they put up a residential uh, condominium building there. Um, and this was not in a historic district per se. It was in the little Italy special district, which just regulates height and setback and some of those considerations, but not the architecture. Oh, so it doesn't really prescribe to the architecture. It's just size. Not in this particular shape. neighborhood. Yeah. yeah, not in that particular neighborhood. But when we started working on the project, I kind of early on felt like we needed to... Um, relate to the legacy of the Italian-American community, which populated that neighborhood, Little Italy. Um, And the buildings that they were in were tenement buildings, walk-up buildings that were Italianate, very Mm -hmm. fancy decoration and articulation. And they came in, you know, two flavors. You see them in red brick, and you also see them in um, white brick with terracotta uh, decorations. Very... um, highly articulated cornices, you know, a very pronounced base. And then the windows were really um, prominent and, 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 and the decorative elements around the windows, they usually responded to a 25 foot um, uh, lot size. Um, And then um, the windows were grouped more in in a way that related to the um, apartments 
you know, where you'd have a small window where there was a, a bathroom or a kitchen yep. and larger windows where there were bedrooms or living rooms. But, you know, these were tenements with like families living in small apartments. Um, anyway, when we started to look at this, I kind of was inspired by that richness of those facades and decided that we wanted to recall those in a way. And we had looked at, let's say, four or five different ways that that could be done uh-huh. in stone with a rough finish and a smooth finish in uh, cast concrete with different, you know, colors or patterns. Um, and then we sort of settled on the idea of using this brick, which had a terracotta color um, and essentially was a custom brick. And the, the, the basis of the brick was a, a, a dome on a single or a half brick or double two bricks that were half. Yeah. Um, and so what, when we started to do an investigation of like what a facade, if we could draw a tenement facade as kind of like the legacy of what was there, um, you know, how would we do that? And so the idea was then to use these dome shapes on the bricks as pixels. And we could then draw uh a facade that recalled the tenement facade in the articulation of the cornices above the windows, the details around the windows, the sills. And so that was a starting point. We had a a blank um, facade, both on Mulberry and Grand, that we drew a tenement building on, which was basically the the building that we we, um, built was the scale of a tenement building. And then since this is a modern building. The windows are just march along at even. Yeah. Rhythmically spaced and sized. Yeah. 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 And so um, you start to see this tension between the grid of the quote unquote modern windows and the facade of the tenement building. And, you know, it, if you walk by, maybe you don't even notice that, or if the light's flat, it doesn't stick out. But as the sun comes up, brighter you start to see and it really uh is clear um and so i think that that memory that tension is what people are attracted to and then start to look at it and like why is it like that and appreciate the fact that it's a new building but it relates to the buildings across the street and down this block and um i think it, I, yeah. it really speaks to, to the I, history i think the other thing that makes it something really special is is the fact that you took a brick and you put the dome on the brick and um i don't know whether you got that idea from somewhere else to dome the brick or where that came from however you could have just pushed a brick forward you know you could have just done things like that which would have um, been or you know smashed the front of a brick off and left it rough but you took this very very deliberate formed set element and applied it to a brick so it became again very precise and modern um rather than it being you know i suppose old or you know like you could have just changed the texture on a brick so what what right. what informed doing this dome and whose whose brilliant idea was it and then who who broke it to the brick company well, that you know, wanted we, to make them all <laughs> we we had a we had well we work with glenn gary which is a brickworks company and they yep. made them they embraced the the project and it was really great um working with them yeah um you know when when we started working with the team 
um, you know, I had this idea about um, creating this I, this story, this and this relationship between the parts. Um, and then we, everybody was just looking at different ideas. And I think someone had done uh, a sketch that had uh, like a tube, you know, inset into the brick. Right. And then, and then we started talking about the challenges of water going in and how it was going to happen. And then that tune, because, because it was a dot, right. It was, it was a point. That was enough. We had looked at some other, you know, special brick shapes from around the world and, we had settled on on this idea of creating the the dome, the pixel. So, and do they produce that brick still, or was it a one? It was a special run for this project, and right. um, I'm talking to them about you know doing a line of bricks that would be not so specific in the sense that it's a dome, but creating bricks that would give a little bit more flexibility in depth. So if the if the brick was a deeper brick. You, and we've done bricks where we've corbel them out, yeah. But you only can go out, you know, like Not twenty, so far. yeah, twenty uh, centimeters or something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Twenty millimeters. You can't go. I'm far sorry, twenty millimeters. Yeah. Twenty yeah, millimeters. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, twenty mil. Yeah. It's um, um it, it's fascinating that because like uh, I know um, Frank Gehry did that one in uh, Sydney where he shaped all the bricks and stuff for it for the university. And yeah. this went there's, by there when I was there. Yeah, I bet you that was it's yeah. worth yeah. seeing, eh? It's it yeah, is something yeah, worth seeing. Yeah. Um and then I love this this thought of this domed brick as well. And I know that it, it, it certainly inspired me to go, huh. I've always, you know, gone in drawings, pushed them out or pulled them back a bit, or, you know, even looked at having the broken off fronts on them, you know, especially if they're, you know, one right. with the, the core holes where so it, it creates a, a shadow and shape again and drawn those onto a several projects over the years. And then I look at this one and I go, oh, but it's so formed. It's so deliberate. And I can imagine it also as a saucer, you know, so that it domes in as opposed right. to out. And I, I had a, years ago, a, a guy that I knew in New Zealand was building a a house, a, 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 an architectural statement home. And he was a rather wealthy New Zealand um, businessman. And we were talking one night. I happened to be at a function and met him and was talking to him. And I said, oh, well, I've been past your, this was before my days of working in, in you know, the built structure, was, I said, I've been past your house. And he said, oh, right, it, it hadn't been finished at this point. And he, I said, um, yeah, yeah, somebody was telling me about, I should go past and have a look because it's so amazing and da-da-da-da. And he said, oh, well, you know, what did you like about it? And I said, well, the brick that you used. I said, it's just like those bricks in Milan. And um, he he just stopped and looked at me and he said, what do, you, yeah. what, what, what do you mean? And I said, well, I go to Milan. I was in the fashion industry. I go to Milan a lot, you know. And I said, but that brick size and shape that they use is, you know, it, I know it is Milan, not necessarily, and, and other parts of Europe, but I know it is Milan as that area. And he's like, well, I had that brick made. And I had that brick made because I'd seen the bricks in Milan. And he, he said, and it, this guy's a, a tax expert, 
That's what he is. He's a tax expert. And this quarter's eye, and he liked modern architecture at quarter's eye and the old buildings there. And he bought that, he bought a brick out back to New Zealand and, and had this brick then replicated. And he, he's a tax expert and a businessman. He had all the molds specially made and then allowed the licensing of those molds to be used by the brick company that made them. And he still owns the uh, patent on that brick size shape individuality. So he gets a license fee. You've got to love the story behind that. But just, you know, again, he felt this thing fitted somewhere. That's great. I mean, I, I know an Italian architect and we were talking about bricks and he said every city in in Italy had their own brick size. So they were like incompatible. And I think that's fascinating. Um, and also, I think probably makes sense to try and figure out if there's a book or some research on why bricks were the size they were in those individual yeah. cities. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, I imagine, yeah, they're, they're, it's like those things like, you know, when you go, oh, well, the horse and cart could only be this wide, so therefore you could only fit this number on, and somebody made it efficient enough that, that they didn't have extra space. Right, right, right. I, I remember talking to the guys from Fiji Water years ago, and the guys um, from Fiji Water were saying, well, we made our bottle square because we didn't end up with the space lost in shipping, so we could right. compact it and get better shipping rates from Fiji around the world. That was one of the things of doing a square bottle. Yeah, yeah. I think I read somewhere, and I don't even know if this is still uh, happening, but one of the senior um, directors at Heineken had uh-huh. gone to you know, the Caribbean and noticed like all these beer bottles just strewn all over the place and came up with the idea to do a bottle that could be used like a brick and build walls from these I I love that square you know Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. but you know I I think with a little bit of innovation we can create some really you know special yeah um, buildings and structures you know you you talk about that and, and they could be built as that I had this thing oh quite a few years back where I went with all the plastic bottles, why couldn't we be, you know, these plastic bottles are littering the earth. Why couldn't they be, A, built or shaped into a certain shape so they could lock together? Right. And if they could lock together, how could we use them as a building thing? And then Absolutely. I went, well, you're not going to change that industry. So what's the locking mechanism you need to make that puts two plastic bottles together that can be maybe sand a building but would, yes. yeah that can become a building unit and maybe it's only a temporary building unit maybe it's a an emergency housing building unit you know right um or something like that but where there's plentiful where there's so many of these things um yeah. and, and that's sort of one of the other ideas for this brick line is that we're using industrial waste uh to capture uh industrial waste and use it as part of the ingredients for these um I love that bricks. So I love that. Um I want to jump around. Tell me about uh working with Rossi. What was that like? Yeah. Um I think obviously lots of people who want to know. Yeah. Well <laughs> that was probably the most important, you know, besides the fact that the teacher said, you know, you should study the orders of, you know, the classical orders to learn about architecture. You know, meeting Aldo really changed my 
point of view and really influence the way that that I work. And I worked with him for about three years in Milan and then 10 years uh, running the office in New York. And the first project we did was the Scholastic Building, which really set the whole tone for this site-specific approach. And I think that that was definitely part of Rossi's um, theoretical um, uh, base, um, which started, you know, in the late fifties and then he wrote the architecture of the cities in the early sixties, mm-hmm. which talks up specifically about typology and history and monuments and, you know, how all of those pieces go into, uh, creating the city. I think what he also did is he refuted this idea of the international style and really focused on creating architecture that was specific to the place. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like Venturi also was challenging that at the time. Um, and so I think that through his writings really affected the, um, the history of architecture. Um, but, you know, working with him also just opened up a whole way of thinking about creating buildings that could coexist with their surroundings. Um, right. And I think that um, if you look at um, Italian cities in general, many of them were uh, destroyed or devastated uh, during the war. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. a lot of Europe uh, mm-hmm. had suffered as a result of bombing. But when the buildings were put back, they still shared something. And so you walk around Milan and you see a modern building, but it doesn't, it's using the same bricks or it's using the same um As you said, it shares, uh, it shares something. Yeah. Yeah, it shares something. And so I think that whole sense of time being less specific and more elastic is something that um, I learned from him or learned from my experience in in Italy particularly. Um, but also that became the foundation of how we approach projects and how we use typology and history and context as a way to inform what we do. And mm-hmm. now, you know, I think you could also say that um, a um, an approach that creates buildings that are sensitive to climate and uh, sustainability is built into that. But I think that that's something that's become moved more to the forefront. It's something that we also, sure. you know, it's to, more, uh, it's more of the conversation currently. And yeah, it was because it, it, it didn't need to be part of the conversation before, because it was like, yeah, we do this, we have shutters yeah. and we have, you know, uh, sun protection, but then everything sort of like, moved on from that and so now we have to kind of reintroduce it to the yeah. to the story yeah things kind of get lost in the story sometimes and they become less relevant and yeah. then all of a sudden it became more relevant i mean yeah. it it obviously um it either sparked a bit of your dna or it, or it formed a bit of your dna um and the culture of how your firm operates as well is rooted in that um yeah. whole thing you know that whole space um another building that we touched on that i'd love you to tell us a bit more about was the samsung building in um in new york because i know the building i mean i i discovered the building when i was in new york looking at architecture 
Right. And that was my whole specifics. And I got myself lost in there playing in the experiential games and stuff. But the building itself was the first thing that I noticed. It, the fact it was Samsung didn't make any difference to me. That was just a, an additive. I noticed the building and went, oh, wow, go, I've got to go and check that out and observe it. Like, again, observe it. And this was, oh, God, I can't remember how many years ago, but pre-pandemic, just pre-pandemic. Yeah. yeah. Um. That was a really important building for the office and also one that I think does a couple of things. One, it shows that relating to the context and to the environment isn't limiting. It kind Mm -hmm. of, in a way, I think liberates you and frees you to kind of think about um, design in a different way. Um, And also, um, it's a dramatic structure that works in a couple of different levels. It does. Um, it carries the drama as well as, as as well as the excitement of being something that visually you you don't have to. You'll see it. You don't have yeah. to um, yeah. go and find it. You know, once you once you're in that area and you walk past it, you'll know you're there. It's, yeah. uh, it's and so it's it's a it's a it was an existing two story building uh, in brick, two tone brick, uh, actually an off white and a red brick. Um, on the corner of 13th and Washington. Uh, it's across from the Hotline, which is yeah. a park that repurposed um, the railroad tracks. A great viewing uh, platform for the building as well. Sorry? It's a great viewing platform for yes, the building. Yes. Yeah. yeah, excellent view. For, yeah, yeah. Um, and so when the, the client first called me, uh, he said, what do you think we can do there? And I said, well, I'll do a little research and I'll, I'll reach out to landmarks to kind of get a sense of what they think. Um, so the first thing I realized, which wasn't good or sort of wasn't great for the idea of adding a big addition on top was that it was a purpose-built meatpacking building. A lot of the buildings in that neighborhood were taller buildings that were shaved down because they were residential buildings. And then once that neighborhood converted to meatpacking, Nobody wanted to live above a meatpacking plant. So maybe you'd have a two, a three or four story building that was shaved down to one or two stories because they put an office above and meatpacking below. Uh, but yeah, this right. was one of a, of a handful of buildings that was actually built, purpose built for meatpacking. So it had a historical significance. And so, and then I called Landmarks and I spoke to someone there and she told me that they could see a story or a story on, uh, and a half on top of the building. So I called back the client. And he said, that's not going to work. We need to get all of our area on that building, which was equivalent of a five-story building. Um, so I was like, I'm game if you are. And it took us about a year and a half to get it approved. And <laughs> up up for of, the challenge. Up for the, yeah, 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 like, let's yeah. go. <laughs> yeah, and it took us three, like, presentations to get there. They were really excited about the idea. My point of view was that we're not building an addition we're kind of building a building that coexists with the existing building so you know it's it, it's a very uh simple square almost exactly square building in plan in brick and then we have this twisting metal structure that penetrates the roof and goes all the way down to the foundation and so to create this narrative about why it was relevant and why it worked is There were two grids from the city, the Greenwich Village grid, which kind of is haphazard and angular, uh, and then the commissioner's grid of 1811, which is 
the grid of the city that everybody knows, you know, right. big yeah. avenues and yep. then smaller streets. What was that? 18, um, what, what year was that? 1811. 1811. Yeah, yeah, right. Before, if you go downtown in Financial mm-hmm. District or, or Greenwich Village, you've got like a whole different street structure. Because And a lot of people are like, wait, how does West 4th Street cross 12th Street? Because those streets didn't, you know, follow any grid. Exactly. I know I know when you're down there and, um, you know, often, well, my first experience of New York and then a few after that was, oh, well, I'll just walk down there because I could see a big tall building down the end. And I thought, well, that can't be that far. And right, then right, when right. you get lost, once you hit the, hit that old district down there, you get lost because the roads run on angles right. and you've you've come from grid. You've come from something that was so easily formed in your head right. to right. all of a sudden things are running across. And you, you do, you walk along going back before Google Maps, you went, I've got a piece of paper here and I'm not quite sure where I am anymore. Yeah, how did that happen? <laughs> but what a great discovery of, of neighborhood as well, doing that. Yeah. And so, and so that really informed this idea of two grids coming together and the organization of the Once the, ba- the base twist. and then yeah they twist as they go up and become a completely different geometry. Um, and then the other things that influenced it really were were the High Line, you know, this industrial language of yeah. uh, columns and beams and exposed uh, connections. Uh, the steel on the building is actually load bearing. Um, and and carries the the actually carries the structure. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so and, yeah, it was a little challenging to to get everything approved at the city, but you know, we we were able to um, prevail. So. I think I think there's a lot in that journey of that conceptual design when you've got the limitations that the city will put on you, and then you know the more the limitation, the more innovative you have to think, and then you're actually in full sales mode uh, to try and it, it goes well beyond yeah, design. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 You're like, how do we, who do I need to lobby and how do I need to get this to move forward? Um, right. And, right. and that separates, I suppose, a lot of architectural firms from being able to do a job to being able to create something amazing in a space because it's that ability to lobby and that ability to see vision and also, you know, I think that part of the process is lim- is listening or knowing when to listen, but also knowing when to to fight. I know we said this last time we were talking about, you know, perfect clients and stuff last time. And there was a conversation that we had and I wrote down this little piece. The best projects come from the, the best clients, the ones that push. And yeah. uh, we talked about this adding tension um, where the client, like just then, the client says, no, no, this won't work unless I can get the full coverage. You know, this, right. this just won't happen. And so at that point there, you've got a client who's pushing. And then on the other side of it, you've got a city that's holding on and saying, hold on in here. And then the joy of the work becomes special because... A, the client's not so movable. B, the city's not so movable. And we've got to find a path through that is going to be expressed in design. Yeah. And, you know, there was one project that I was absolutely convinced was the right approach. And I made the presentation to the Landmarks Commission and it really didn't go over well. And (laughs) they were just like 
questioning and commenting. Now, the, the, the commission is made up of architects, designers, lawyers, um, business people. Um, but the dialogues or discussions are generally very, you know, informed. And, you know, I think they, they, they it's not like if you go to a, a community board and everybody just oh, yeah. is like, we don't want to see anything, you know, they're yeah. like, well, yeah. we hear what you're saying, but it doesn't make sense. So, and there was a point where I was like, okay, let's just end this meeting. Cause I just realized what we need to do. We need to do the opposite of what we did in terms of, we had a point in the building where the building fanned out and I was like, that needs to happen on the corner, not in uh, uh, down the block. And so I was just wanting to get out of there so I could start sketching just get, this yeah. new idea that was informed by what they were saying. And so again, you know, it's like the process can make things better. And I think we can't, eliminate that process we need to embrace it and we need to find ways to make it um i think you're help so right our, our, i our think designs. so right like yeah the adversity and the um that tension when that tension exists all of right. a sudden the creative mind comes to solve it and and it's a journey like you know the architecture is never a destination until it's built until it's formed then it becomes the destination all the rest of the way it's a journey and it's a discovery along that that process um i have i there's a hundred other things that we could talk about so easily i have a a last question though because uh, you've got a life to get on with and (laughs) it is i asked this question before but i really enjoyed our uh, your answer and it was one last project if you had yeah. to hang up your pencil and never do another project, um, what would you choose? What would it be? And you know, why? I, I, it, and I'll try and answer this the same way. Well, um, if not, if it's changed well, since you've had a no, week no, to has, think it, about well, it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. I, you know, I, I just want to sort of capture the spirit of that conversation. Yeah, because it was, it was fabulous. Yeah. So, Let's get back to Aldo Rossi for one second because uh-huh. I think that's important in this in 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 this um, uh, discussion or in relation yeah. to the question. Um, I was first drawn to Aldo Rossi. I mean, he did two very important projects. One was the Galeritese, uh housing block, um, and the other was the uh, San Cataldo Cemetery in Modena. But the project that really drew me to his work was a little theater that floated on a barge for the Biennale in 1979-1980 called the Teatro Mondo, which was a little theater that channeled the idea of floating theaters that were around since the 1500s in uh, Venice, um, but also became a forum for poetry, theater, ideas, discussion. Um, But it also was a building that was modern. It was very modest in its scale, but it resonated in you know, the Grand Canal, which is something that's very difficult. I mean, you've got some of the most potent architecture in the world as a backdrop. And maybe one or some can argue, oh, that's why it makes it great. But if you have the wrong thing in the foreground, it's never going to be great. 100%. So that, that really resonated for me and attracted me to his work. And just this idea that you can do something that's modern, that could be playful, but it can also resonate. 
And I always appreciated his cemetery. Um, but that was never something that I ever thought I would want to design. Um, but recently, or this past summer, I was in Stockholm and there was a, a Leverance um, exhibition, which I was very fortunate to see. And then I was able to go to the Woodland Cemetery, which was a competition that Leverance and Osplen won um, and, and built. And I have to say that was the most uh, moving uh, experience I ever had in art. Before that, I think I said the Alhambra was one that brought together so many different senses and mm-hmm. and stimulation, um, both in you know the plantings and the scents and the, and the sounds and just the overall uh, visual appeal. But just walking in this woodland um, context uh, was probably you know the 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 the, the single most. Um, special moment I had. And so I think if I could have the opportunity to do something that even got close to that, then that would be my ideal project. It would be a fabulous project. And I, I think when we were talking last time, we talked about how cemeteries somewhat demand time of you um, when you're in their space and they they have a expectation that shifts behavior, um, you know, of reverence and quietness and um respect and order of some sort that that, they're fascinating well and also you know i think if i contrast rossi's project with um the woodland cemetery you know and rossi described that as the city of the dead um i think the woodland cemetery celebrates life and you know the moments that you're there, I think you cherish that experience. And it's not like I'm seeing rows of tombstones or I'm seeing, you know, the le- history or legacy of, of a family or you're, you're enjoying nature in a way that is man created, um, but is invigorating. And it's not like you're, you're, it, 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 it achieves the level that you have when you're in nature but it's done in a way that you can celebrate life. So. Yeah. And if you were to do the cemetery, where would you where would you want it to be? Oh wow. I think I'd want it to be in a city or close to a city. Yeah. So it's not just alone by itself, because I think that that is important. You know how it fits into the context and how it. Um, becomes available for people to um, enjoy. To observe and enjoy. Yeah, yeah, to observe, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And not just to go, I mean, I saw people running with their dogs, riding bikes. I mean, it's not like it's only people there to consummate the, a burial or... or um, it's a place of life as well as a place of yeah. um, of, yeah. of passing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think that's what's important. Yeah, I think it's, if, if we approached not just cemeteries, but um, if if the architecture approached a lot th- a lot of things that way, uh, and it does now, it embraces it far more as places of of life. You know, like I, I was in Barcelona, as I said, and one of the things that I loved was 
the guy who took us around was um, Johannes Wartman from Wartman Architecture. And he was taking us around the old city and he's showing us where, I think it was in 76, the mayor knocked down a whole lot of buildings and um, opened, well, they were old, they were old buildings, but they weren't significant and they were in disrepair and it opened up these green spaces. And then those are, are somewhat modern green spaces are surrounded by old buildings. And then there's some beautiful placemaking with, you know, um, cobbles and mounds and chairs and things like that. And how that in itself creates a new space out of an old space and engages people to come into it. And so when you do this again, like with, say, a cemetery, it's a place that celebrates life uh, rather than just right. consummates the end of life. And, right. And and I think that that's the most important piece of this is that it's yeah for people to enjoy, not to, a final resting place. Do you know, in London, I don't know whether this is true or where I got the story from, uh, but there's lots of little, you know, like maybe one block greens, you know, one, one, one site greens and right. stuff in London. And as I say, Anybody listening, do not take this for gospel. Please do your research. But I remember being told that those were, a lot of them were burial plots from the plague and that wow. that's why they've never been built on. Now, whether uh, whether that's true or not, everybody should do their research and I'll go and do I'm going to do it right after this. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, but yeah, that they were, that that's why a lot of them exist because they became burial lots from the plague. And wow. of course, at that time, they wouldn't have been right in the some of them are right in the city, but the city was much smaller at that point as right. well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, just again, this um, the way things happen, the way things come about. Morris, fabulous, fabulous chat, and um, I, I feel like the victor because I got this one and the previous one. And I'm sorry for all the listeners that didn't get the previous one. We covered some of the stuff, but we found a new path along the way as well, which Absolutely. was really cool. Um, well, and, and I'm glad that we did, because otherwise it would have seemed like we were reciting. Oh, you know, yeah, it would have felt rote. It would have felt yeah. rote, without a doubt. Yeah. Um, the Devil in the White City. Um, yeah. who, who wrote that again? Um, you, remember? Uh, you want me to Google it while we're talking? Or? Oh, no, I can look that up then. I can look that up. That's no problem. Um, it's, it's really a great read. Uh, you know, and um, I'm going to look for it in, uh, in Audible today. So it could be my um, little holiday read. Hopefully somebody's gone to the trouble of reading it. Okay, it's Eric Larson. Eric Larson. Okay, he's written a number of great books, but that one is particularly good. Um, another one, another good book is Brunelleschi's Dome um, by Ross King. I'm giving you architecture reading here. Um, it just talks about how Brunel, there was a competition because once they built the the they didn't know how to, to to create the dome. They didn't have the technology. And there's really great stories there. Um, about how things they... like, well, you know, just the whole structure and, yeah. and, and he conceived of it. But things like it would take so long for the workers to climb up to the to, to do the work that they would give them watered down wine. So they would have lunch up there and they would just stay just, you know, buzzed enough that they would keep working, but not too drunk that they would fall off the scaffold (laughs) and there's all kind of stories of how they got the stone and everything and that's a a little short book but really good so oh that's awesome that's really cool 
really, really cool. Um, I will encourage listeners to, by all means, um, write into us, uh, contact us. If you've got questions for Morris about any of his buildings or anything that uh, is to do with the subject of architecture and what he can impart, by all means, please write into us. And uh, you'll find that on talkdesign.show. And Morris, of course, will put all their socials and stuff like that up so that you can follow them and see the work that they do. I mean, we've talked about a couple of buildings and some beautiful ideas. Uh, There is so many amazing buildings. And when you understand the approach that his team, him and his team take to create this, uh, it's something special. And, And look for those details, look for the fun of that. And we would love for you to, um, stay in touch that way with us and enjoy the knowledge and the the depth of knowledge that Morris can uh, surpass or or, or, or pass on to you. I'm trying to think of the right word for that. Morris, thank you so much, man. And um, happy holidays, huh? Yeah, happy holidays. And thanks again, Adrian. Um, As I said before, I'll say it again. You have an open invitation in New York and in New Orleans. So just let me know when you want to come. I, I will be there. That is for certain. Thank you so much.